0: Father in heaven, we thank you for the blessing that we have received this morning. The blessing of the baptisms, the reports on what you are doing in people's lives right here in this community, in this church, for the music and for the scripture. And so now as we open your word for a bit more, we pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to be here and speak to our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. So. I was gathering with some other Christian attorneys in the town where I live. Um, We get together about once a month at a coffee shop and and pray together and fellowship a little bit. And uh, one of the attorneys uh, and I were talking, and he said, Steve, the world has changed, it's different. It's never been like this in our lifetime. And I thought, well, that's that's certainly true. That's an understatement, isn't it? And a lot of people in our world are thinking that, aren't they? In fact, even people that are not particularly religious are wondering, what's going on in the world? Pestilence, wars, rumors of wars, anger, Division to a point that we haven't seen in decades, maybe centuries. And of course, add to that all of the um, mass shootings we've been seeing just in the last few weeks, right? One right after the other. All of this happening in rapid succession, seemingly all at once sometimes, in this never ending cycle that seems to continue to escalate. And so even those who may not be particularly religious are wondering, are we on the verge of the end of the world? Let me see if my slides are are gonna be up here today. Oh, there we go. But here's an even more important question for us to ask as seventh day what? Adventists. Isn't that who we are? Adventists. We are people who believe that Jesus will return soon, don't we? It's in our name. It's in who we are. It's in our DNA as a movement. Here's a question I think we ought to be asking. Is it the end of the world? Of course, yes. We know the end of the world is near. We've been saying that for the last 170 years or so. But here's the question. If it is, the end of time, what should we be doing about it? That's the question I've been asking myself recently. And to answer that question, I want to take you to a prophecy about the world right before Jesus returns. Now, I understand that you have been journeying through the book of Daniel. Is that correct? Lots of good prophecies in Daniel and also Revelation. Revelation harkens back to Daniel a lot, doesn't it? Lots of good stuff. And of course, we as Seventh-day Adventists love those books because the messages there are they are timely, they're important. But today I want to take you to a different prophecy, one by the Apostle Paul. But before we get there, let's just review, let's ask a question about why God gives us prophecy to begin with. Um, is it just so that we are in the know, that we know something that other people don't? You know, Jesus gives us a clue. If you go to Matthew chapter 24, of course, this is the, uh, the sermon Jesus gives right before he goes to the cross that is his version of the end of time, isn't it? Matthew 24, Jesus tells us in verses 42 through 44, he says, listen, I'm telling you these things so that you can watch and be ready So that's one good reason why God gives us prophecy. Additionally, in John chapter 13, Jesus tells us in in John's rendering of this same sermon, he tells us some different things that Jesus said. Here's one of the things Jesus said right before he goes to the cross. He tells us this. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. In other words, When we see prophecy fulfilled, our faith in God's word is strengthened. We know that God is credible, that he's reliable. But I'd like to suggest that there's an even more basic and perhaps more important reason why God gives us prophecy. And we catch a clue of this when Jesus in the same gospel, the gospel of John, is talking to the religious leaders of his day. Now, these religious leaders knew the, their Bible, did they not? Absolutely, they were uh, probably had it memorized better than most of us do. Uh, so they they had a lot of head knowledge. But notice here what Jesus tells them. So he said to them, "Listen, you are studying the Scriptures diligently. Number one, let's ask this question: Is that a good thing to do? Yes." Uh, because that you think that in them you have eternal life Now i've shared this message with a few other churches and uh, I, I like to ask this question It's a little bit of a trick question and I ask people and the answers the the responses are interesting uh, Do you get eternal life from from the bible? Yes or no? Well, it's, it's a little bit of a trick question, right? Because on one hand we could say yeah the the way to find eternal life is Revealed in the bible but does the Bible itself, or just knowing the words of the Bible, understanding the prophecies of the Bible, does that give us eternal life? Well, you guys are, you guys are on it here today. Now, look what Jesus says. He says, these are the very scriptures that testify about who? About me, this is Jesus talking, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Now this is ironic, isn't it? That the very scriptures that the Jewish leaders and, and religious uh, you know, teachers were studying were trying to lead them to somebody that they were rejecting. And so Jesus said, you can have head knowledge, but miss the point of scripture at the same time. Isn't that what he's telling us here? And I would suggest to you that this can apply to prophecies about the end of time as well. Because like the Jewish religious leaders who were Bible students and were pious people, uh, in their study of Scripture, though, they missed the point of Scripture itself, which was the Messiah that those Scriptures pointed forward to. And so here's something important, and that is that The point of prophecy is to lead us to Jesus so that we can experience eternal life. He is what it's all about. The Bible writers testify about him. And if our study of scripture and prophecy does not lead us to know him and to live life more like him, then we have missed the point of prophecy. Paul, by the way, in his epistle to the Romans, chapter 13, verses 11 through 14, which I will not quote to you today in full, he agrees with this. He basically says there, listen, it's time to wake up. Prophecies are telling us that Jesus is coming soon. He's telling us this 2,000 years ago, by the way. And he's saying it's time to wake up because, um, uh, you know, the night is nearly gone. The day is at hand. Let us cast off the works of darkness. Let's follow Jesus, in other words. And then he goes down in verse 14. He says, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Paul is telling us prophecy should lead us to come to Jesus, to accept his working in our lives, and to become more like him, right? He's telling us pretty much the same thing there that Jesus was telling the religious leaders. Now, it's interesting because in Matthew 24, going back now to Matthew's version of of in-time events, okay, Matthew 24, Matthew tells us that divorcing Jesus from Scripture will be an issue at the end of time. you want to see? Go to Matthew chapter 24 and look at verse 4. So Jesus, first of all, starts out his sermon. He says, watch out that no one deceives you. For many will come, how? In my name, saying, I am the Messiah, and they will do what? Deceive many. They're going to come in Jesus' name, but not with his message, not with something that will lead to the point of what prophecy is about, which is the real Jesus. There will be false messages about Christ. Going on to verse 24. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. See, I've told you ahead of time. Notice, if possible, even the elect, the chosen ones, you, me, will be deceived. Now, that's some pretty strong deception. Don't you agree? And Jesus tells us how it will happen. They will come in his name. Now, while there will undoubtedly be literal manifestations of dudes walking around in long burlap robes with beards saying, I am Jesus, those are pretty easy to spot, aren't they? You know, you can be like, okay, nope, not Jesus. We know he's coming in the clouds, right? Uh, But what's a little more difficult for all of us is a message that purports to be from Christ— might sound a lot like Christ in some ways, but it's not really from Jesus. And Jesus says, be careful because that will be where the deception will happen. I think that's what he's trying to say. Again, going to Paul, Paul gives us, he's agreeing with Jesus a lot here. In 1 Timothy, look at this, chapter 4, he says pretty much the same thing. He says, now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly, this is 1 Timothy 4.1, that in the last days, here's what's going to happen, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. So they're not necessarily following a guy in a burlap robe who's got a shepherd's staff and saying, I am Jesus, but they're following teachings that are essentially the same thing. Jesus says, be careful. Because if our knowledge of Scripture, if our, if our interpretations of prophecy, if our... If our focus is not on the real Jesus, well, we don't want to be there, do we? So let's get to that prophecy about the last days that I told you about at the beginning. Now, it's, it's, it's from the Apostle Paul, and if you have your Bible, go now to 2 Timothy, okay? Not first, but 2 Timothy, and we're going to go to the third chapter here. This is a prophecy that, you know, as I have studied apocalyptic, you know, end time prophecies for many years, it wasn't one that I always put into that category, but it is. It's an end time prophecy. And it's a fascinating one at that. So I'm going to put it on the screen for you as well. In the, uh, this is from the New uh, Living Translation. Oh, 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 wrong one. Let's go here. New Living Translation. There we go. And he's writing, of course, to his protege, Timothy, here, who was probably the pastor of the church of Ephesus. And so he, he writes to him and he says, Timothy, in the last days, you should know this, there will be very difficult times. Well, thank you, Paul, for telling us what, we, what we've already figured out here, right? But here's how he describes it. For people will do what? Love only themselves and their money. That's an end-time prophecy, folks. Uh, they will be boastful and proud, scoffing at god well that one we're seeing right we see that all the time disobedient to their parents okay and ungrateful they will consider nothing sacred so far you're just going down the list and check 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 right you see it in the world you see it all around okay goes on he says they will be unloving and unforgiving check right they will slander others and have no self-control again We see it. They will be cruel and hate what is good. They will betray their friends, be reckless, be puffed up with pride and love, pleasure, rather than God. And so far, all of us here are like, yep, we see it. And here's the thing. As I read this prophecy, I'm not surprised. Because this is what the world does. But the next part is what shocks me. Look at this. They will act religious, these people, but they will reject the power that could make them godly. Is it possible that the people Paul is describing here are the ones that Jesus is describing who are deceived at the end of time, Right, that we've been talking about previously? And it's interesting because if you want to know why this is, that there are religious people professing to follow Christ who are doing these things at the end of time, Paul actually tells us in the next chapter, if you go to chapter four of the same book, 2 Timothy chapter four, I'll put it on the screen for you again. He says, here's why. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. That means teaching that comes from the word of God that's you know, true and correctly interpreted. Instead, they, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears, that's a funny phrase, isn't it, uh, want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myth. This is why Paul says at the end of time, there will be an epidemic of ungodliness that's dressed up in religion. Now that, my friends, is concerning, isn't it? Because here's the thing, as we look around the world today and see all forms of sin and evil and violence and injustice abounding, I don't know about you, but I'm not not completely surprised. After all, that's the world and that's what they do. And well, we may not be surprised, of course we can and should be doing all we can to stem the tide of evil. We'll talk more about that in a moment, how we can maybe do that. But what is alarming to me is that the Apostle ends this listing of evil deeds with this this proclamation that they will act religious. Or in the words of the old King James, you know this one, they will have a form of godliness. What does it say? A form of what? Godliness. Um. Most of us here, if we were to be asked, are you a godly person, would probably be hesitant to raise our hands, right? That's a pretty high bar. But Paul says there will be a form of godliness, but they will deny the power thereof. You know, Paul is really echoing, going back to those traditional apocalyptic prophecies, he's really echoing what Revelation 13 already tells us. Did you know that? What does Revelation 13 tell us? It tells us that worship will be in vogue at the end of time. Religion will be in vogue before Jesus comes back. And in fact, this religion will be so in vogue that uh, this lamb-like beast, the second beast of Revelation chapter 13, which we as Seventh-day Adventists have traditionally understood to represent our beloved country, nation, the United States, that this second beast nation would enforce... A false version of Christianity, of the Lamb's religion on the world. And so, Paul is just telling us the same thing here. That this in time, false religion will be one that appears godly in many ways, but it's without the Holy Spirit. Counterfeit worship, a counterfeit Jesus that misses the point of it all. So how do we know? How do we know that we're following the lamb wherever he goes? Well, we don't have time today to discuss all the intricacies and ins and outs of these prophecies. But I want to just share with you one prophecy from the Old Testament, I think will kind of guide us as we seek to follow Jesus, because that's what we all want to do, isn't it? I want to take you back to Isaiah chapter 58. Isaiah chapter 58. You may be wondering, how does Isaiah have anything to do with Revelation or with Paul? But if you know Revelation, which I'm sure you do, because I know your, your, your pastor here, Pastor Page, is studying Daniel with you, and I'm sure you've studied Revelation many times before, you know that Revelation, John, the revelator, borrows from the Old Testament, doesn't he? In fact, there are hundreds of allusions to the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. Not only the book of Daniel, but also the book of Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And so, Revelation, uh, well, Isaiah chapter 58, describes something very similar to what Paul describes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, to what Revelation 13 describes in a way as well. This idea of church people religious people acting religious but not really having the power of godliness is nothing new according to isaiah go to isaiah chapter 58 starting in verse one or sorry verse verse two it goes on to say there it says yet these people in isaiah's day act so pious they're religious they come to the temple how often i'm reading from the new living translation here uh they come every day that's more than most of us go to church isn't it They seem delighted to learn all about me, God says. They act like a righteous nation that would never abandon the laws of its God. These folks, in Isaiah's day, the church people he's describing, are professed commandment keepers. Have mercy. They act like a righteous nation. Uh, They they ask me to take action on their behalf, pretending they want to be near me. And then verse 3, look at this. We have fasted before you, they say. Why aren't you impressed? We have been very hard on ourselves, and you don't even notice it. These are fasting and praying and church-going commandment keepers. Or so they profess. And then God says, I will tell you why. I'll tell you why I'm, I'm not noticing your religion, your worship. Here's why. It's because you are fasting to please yourselves even while you fast you're oppressing your workers what good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarreling the kind of fasting will this kind of fasting will never get you anywhere with me the people isaiah describes are very religious are they not but they have no real connection with the real god they claim to be commandment keepers but they're actually commandment breakers well, they're worshiping God, they're living unethical, unloving lives while they do it. And so the prophet Amos, a contemporary of Isaiah, describes this same group of people and God's reaction to it in this way. This is God speaking, and this is shocking. God says, I hate and I despise your religious festivals. Have mercy again, right? Your assemblies are a stench To me, away with the noise of your songs. I'm not going to listen to the music of your harps. But here's what he wanted let justice, how we treat other people on a horizontal level, in other words, roll on like a river and righteousness like a never failing stream. You see, while enthusiastically worshiping God, they're ignoring the Spirit's voice and the commands of God's word. In other areas of their lives, and specifically in this case, and how they relate to people in the world around them. No doubt they treat some people well, but others not so well. Or they lend their tacit support to those who are exploiting others. And so Jesus actually, I think, hits. This nerve in the Sermon on the Mount as he describes what true worship is all about. Do you want to see a verse that I have been just, I don't know, um, I've been meditating. I've been marinating, if I can do that. Can I marinate on a verse? Can I marinate a verse in my mind? Is that okay? Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. Open your eye. I don't have it on the screen for you today. Matthew chapter 7, verse 12. This one is just, it has blown my mind my mind. It's it's a verse that I'm like, how have I missed this verse for most of my life? Oh, Oh, sure. I read it. I've read my Bible many times. I've heard it before, but for some reason, I just, it hasn't really sunk in. So what did Jesus say in Matthew 7 verse 12? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. And then this last part of the part that has just hit me recently, for this sums up the what? Wow. I mean, do we understand what that's saying? Jesus is telling us, this is Jesus, by the way. He's saying if you want to know what it's really all about. Okay, sure, we have the great commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. The second commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus is saying, listen, when you love God with all your heart, this is really the outgrowth of that. And if you really want to know what it's all about, what following me is all about, this is it. Sure, there's other things that matter. I'm not saying that there are other things that don't matter. But this is really the essence of what the law and the the prophets are really telling us. And in fact... You know, there's what John tells us in his epistle that we can't really even love God if we don't love people. And in fact, I have been learning in my life that the more I learn to love the people I dislike, and there are a few of those. Anybody here have people you may not care for so much? The more I learn to love my enemies, the closer I come to God. Is it easy? I have a friend who's a former drug addict, and his, one of his uh, little sayings that I've kept with me all these years after I've heard his testimony many times is, it's simple, but it ain't easy. This command, this maxim that Jesus gives us here is probably it's the most profound thing, I think, that one of the most profound things of Scripture. And it's also one of the most difficult things to live in our lives. Right? Selfish human beings. Do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. Jesus says this is what this is what the law and the prophets are all about. Well, I want to I get back to following Jesus at the end of time. So there is this problem of a, a false Jesus, a customized superficial Christianity that passes for the real thing that Jesus said is really, he, he gives us this idea that's really centered in selfishness. That's what Isaiah is telling us there, right? That's what Paul seems to be telling us as well. And Jesus tells us that it will actually lead people to do some pretty terrible things. I want you to just take a moment here. We're not going to focus on the depressing the whole time. I promise we'll get to the good stuff in a second here. Jesus says, I'm telling you these things. This is, Again, this is his sermon. This is Matthew 24 sermon. That this is John's version of Jesus' end time sermon. I've told you these things so you won't abandon your faith. Okay, Good reason there for prophecy as well. For you will be expelled from the synagogues. The time is coming when those who kill you will think they're doing God a service. And that's sobering. Because the people of 2 Timothy 3 there, that's really what's going on, right? Same people. Same group of people. But here's why they're going to do it. Because they've never really known the real Jesus. The Jesus that said, hey, listen, if you want to know what the law and the prophets, what I'm all about, it's about about loving each other. Even the people we don't like. Even our enemies. Even the folks that we find to be, maybe their views are are quite detestable to us. God says, I want you to learn to love them. That's what sums up the law and the prophets. These people don't know that Jesus. And because of that, they do things in his name that Jesus would never do or condone. If they knew the real Jesus, they would know that this is a God who said, love your enemies. Right? This is the God who lays down his life, and as his hands and feet are being nailed to that Roman cross, he is saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And so the last thing I want to do here today, though, is leave you focused on what the bad guys are or will be doing. At the start, we ask the question, if this is the beginning of the end, if this is the end of time, as people are feeling it may be, what do we do about it? How do we live our lives in view of that reality? Paul and Isaiah tell us that merely acting religious going through the forms of religion or not, that's not the answer. Amos reminds us that even enthusiastic worship without caring about people around us is just empty worship. And Jesus tells us that the essence of what it means to follow him is to do unto others as we would have them do unto us. This sums up the law and the prophets, he said. But if the last couple years of strife and controversy in our country, you know, all the things that have been going on here, if they've taught us anything, again, it's that we can't live out this golden rule without the miracle of a changed heart. But after we pray for the Holy Spirit to fill us, we have to act on our prayers, even if we may not feel like it, right? So Isaiah, going back to his, his chapter there, tells us the antidote. He tells us the problem, same problem that Paul is telling us about at the end of time. And then he tells us what the solution to that problem is in Isaiah chapter 58. Start, go back to that chapter and look in verse 6. Here's what he says. Is not this the kind of fasting that I have chosen for you? Here's what it is. Listen to this. To loose the chains of injustice, to untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry? That could be both literal and spiritual food, couldn't it? And to provide the poor wanderer with shelter, and when you see the naked, to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood be great to flesh out what all that looks like in real life but i see some of what you folks are doing here at this church is doing these very things praise god for that you know even though we know that the ultimate goal as followers of jesus is not to create some sort of utopia here on earth that's not our goal as followers however well we're here should we not make this world a better place amen not only do we point people forward to a future world that is going to solve all the problems of life where Jesus will, will give us a new world. While we're here, God says, I want you to make the world a better place. The early Adventists certainly did that. You know, they were involved in all sorts of issues to make the world a better place in their day and age. They were involved in the abolition of slavery. They were involved in the movement to prohibit alcohol. You know, whatever you think about all of that. The point is, they were involved in their world. And we know that even though we as Christians will never create a world that is perfect in the here and now, we know that God can still work through his church in the here and now. And that's why you have your farm, I assume, here in town, right? You're making a difference in this community through that farm. You're doing it with all the other activities of this church as well. And while evil may still appear to triumph in our world this side of heaven, God still calls us to do the work that Isaiah outlines there In Isaiah chapter 58, to do justice, to love mercy, to walk humbly with our God, as the prophet Micah put it. Martin Luther King Jr. many years ago said these words, and I think they kind of express this well. He said, you know, evil may so shape events that Caesar will occupy a palace and Christ a cross. But look at this, but that same Christ arose And he split history into A.D. and B.C. Somebody ought to say, man, that's good news, isn't it? So that even the life of Caesar must be dated by his name. Yes, he says, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Jesus will come soon, and he will make all things right. But in the here and now, God still says, I want you to work to make the world a better place. Here's the promise in, a, in, in verse 8 of Isaiah 58 it says, Then your light will break forth like the dawn, your healing will appear quickly, and your righteousness, that's really God's righteousness shining through us, will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Ella White actually said, You know, if you want to know what, God's, what God wants His church to be doing right now, practically speaking, read the, Isaiah 58 chapter, read that chapter. Over and over again, it is present truth for the people of God. We could talk so much more about this, but it goes on to give us some amazing promises there in verses 9 and 10. Then, God says, when your worship is more than a form, when you're saying, I not only want to profess Jesus, but start acting like Jesus in the world, then, God says, you will call. Oh, look at this. And the Lord will answer you will cry for help. And he will say, here I am. If you do away with the yoke of oppression, with the pointing finger and malicious talk, and if you spend yourselves on behalf of the hungry and satisfy the needs of the oppressed, then your light will rise in the darkness and your night will become like the noonday. Eventually, I suggest there will only be two groups of people in the world at the end of time. One group is self-centered, focused on themselves, their needs, their preferences, their self-preservation. The religion of this group will be a Powerless formality that leads them to justify even killing others in the name of Christ. That's one group. The other group is motivated by the love and yes, even the fear of God. To worship him and to love and serve people like Jesus did. Even their enemies. They work to make the world a better place, to share with others this everlasting gospel so others can experience eternal life true. They pray, Thy kingdom come, Thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. They're working to make the world a better place while they wait for Jesus to come back. Here's how Ellen White described it. I want to share a quote with you uh, from her. that She describes, I think, a way, a simple way, that you and I can be involved in this work. Look at this. This is for us, church. If all who know the truth, well, that's us here, isn't it? will take hold of this work, the work that we've read about in Isaiah 58. As opportunities are presented, look at this, day by day, doing little acts of love in the neighborhood where they live, Christ will be manifest to their neighbors. I'm going to live this out in my life. Don't you? Simple and actually pretty easy if you think about it. The gospel will be revealed as a living power and not as cunningly devised fables or idle speculations. It will be revealed as a reality, not the result of imagination or enthusiasm. This will be of more consequence than even sermons or professions or creeds. Sermons are good. But living it out with little acts of love in the neighborhood, powerful. I want to do that. Do you want to survive the end of times? I suggest that the best way for you and I to prepare for the end of time is to, well, maybe not focus so much on ourselves, which I tend to do, my own needs and preferences, and focus on the point of prophecy, which is Jesus himself. As I do that, as we do that, I think our our world view our, our 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 view of what god wants us to do will begin to focus in on what he would do on what he loves and then as we begin to do those things to serve others like jesus did we will be ready to fit into a heaven where that's just the way they are up there they're doing the golden rule they're living out that golden rule. I'm going to tell you a story to end here today. It's a story about this man right here, Captain Lawrence Chambers. You may have heard this story before. He was had just recently taken command of um, a U.S. Navy aircraft carrier, the USS Midway. This is back in the 1970s. Uh, let's see, April 1975 to be exact. This was, of course, the time when... Um, uh, there were the fall of Saigon and and their, their, the um, United States military was evacuating, many were, were leaving Vietnam. His aircraft carrier was parked is that the term you use with a ship? Anchored. Anyway, it was out there a ways offshore and friends of the United States, these different Vietnamese you know, officers and, and their families were coming to the ship, evacuating Saigon, right? The deck of the USS Midway was filled with helicopters and airplanes that were almost out of gas or out of fuel, and they were sitting on the deck of that ship. And as they were there in the waters, they look up, and a little Cessna bird dog a little tiny single-engine plane flew over the deck of the USS Midway. Finally, after several attempts, this airplane managed, someone in the airplane managed to drop a note attached to a firearm that had, uh, they were trying to find some way to weight it down, and dropped a note down on the deck. Someone got the note, and the note said, I have several people on board, and I can land if you can clear the deck, but I'm almost out of fuel. Now, aboard that little Cessna bird dog airplane was a South Vietnamese officer. He had fled the collapsing nation to save his family. And and Chambers, Captain Chambers, saw as he looked through his field glasses that there were at least two small children on that plane. Now, Captain Chambers had received orders from higher up to tell other planes to ditch in the ocean. We'll come out and rescue you once you, you know... Why not you land in the water? Well, Captain Chambers looked up and he thought, you know, the pilot will survive. Maybe the person in the passenger seat, this is a two-seater, those kids aren't going to make it. I can't tell them to ditch. That plane will somersault in the water and, 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 and those kids won't make it. And so Captain Chambers did something risky he decided to disobey the orders from higher up. And he sent out a message to the whole ship, all hands on deck. And so suddenly the upper deck of this aircraft carrier was filled with sailors. And then the order was given twice. And it was written down in the ship's log, Captain Chambers wanted there to be no mistake as to who had given the order. The order was given to clear the deck. Now, Captain Chambers, in an interview about 10 years ago, I think he died maybe about eight years ago, um, said that while the deck was being cleared, he decided to turn his back because he didn't want to know exactly how much military equipment was being pushed into the ocean. He knew he was going to be court-martialed for this, and he thought, you know what, I'm just going to say, I don't know how many helicopters got pushed into the water. Hundreds of thousands of, well, millions of dollars of military equipment went into the water that day. Helicopters without fuel that couldn't move were pushed aside so that one little airplane could land on the deck of that aircraft carrier. Now, keep in mind, Captain Bung Lee, the South Vietnamese officer flying that little bird dog, had never landed on an aircraft carrier before. His little Cessna bird dog didn't have a hook that could come down and catch that arresting wire as the plane went across the deck of that ship to slow it down. You know how that works, right? And and, and so Captain Chambers thought, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to turn this ship into the wind, and we're going to speed up as fast as we can to give that little airplane as much of a chance as possible to land and to slow down and to make it. And so that's exactly what they did. They turned the ship into the wind, and there is a picture as Captain Bungley brought that little airplane down onto the deck of the USS Midway and successfully landed that little airplane right there on the deck. As soon as this picture was taken and the propeller stopped whirring or whatever, you know, the 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 ship or the plane was surrounded by sailors there. The question was had it been worth it? Was it worth it? For Captain Chambers to risk his career, perhaps? Defying orders, all of that military equipment To save the lives of just a few? Was it worth it? This is a picture from just a few years ago. And there's Captain Chambers standing there in the Hawaiian shirt beside the airplane. Bung Lee, the pilot of that plane, is inside there. And here are some of his children and now grandchildren. The children were the ones on that little airplane who were saved many years ago. Was it worth it? As it turned out, Captain Chambers never was court-martialed for this. You know, the story reminds me just a little bit of Jesus. It reminds me that as Christ hung upon the cross, Satan tormented him with the question, will it be worth it? Is this really going to work? But no matter, Jesus would die. He would die for a sinful world that had rejected him. He would die for his persecutors. He would die for his betrayer. And he would die for you and for me. And now he says to us, come, take up your cross and follow me. And as we do, we find that there is joy in knowing Jesus and in loving and forgiving and serving a world in need like him and that my friends is is the point of prophecy let's pray father today you've called us to live for such a time as this our world is our world is in a sad state But you've given us life in 2022 for a reason. You have called us as your church to live out the life of Jesus in the world today. it has got to be a reason, Lord, you gave us life right now. And we are here today because we're just saying, Lord, we want to fulfill whatever purpose that you have called us to. Well, let me put it a different way, Lord. We want you to fulfill that through us. And so we're here today with our hands open to you to say, God, come into our hearts, come into our lives. Lord, forgive us for where we have ever worshiped you without really following you. But today we're here to say, God, we just want to follow you wherever you go. We want to represent you in a world that gets you wrong so much of the time. And Lord, we are sure that we'll make mistakes along the way, but never mind. You said, just follow me. Take up your cross, follow me, and we will. you will show us the way. This is our prayer today. I thank you for this church here in Templeton Hills and their witness in this community, God. I pray that you bless them and all that you are doing through them. In Jesus' name, amen.